Good morning and Boker Tov to all. To those observing Yitesh Kislev, the Rosh Hashanah Chassidus, a good Yantif. Everyone's invited tonight. It's a good reminder to our Yitesh Kislev Fabrengen taking place tonight. Join us. It follows our continuation of our new Tuesday night sim, uh, series on the American Orthodox Rabbinate. I'll be speaking tonight about Rav Meir Barilan. Rav Meir Barilan. Of a brother of Rechaim Berlin, a son of the Nitziv, led a fascinating life. He lived in America only for 10 years, but had a transformational impact in his time in America. And actually, when he's already living in Israel, came back, before there was a lobby in Washington, came back, met with the vice president, and was a strong and uh, vocal advocate and lobbyist for Jews who were suffering in the Holocaust. Fascinating story we will uh, speak about tonight at 7.30. Want to uh, thank our sponsors for our Parsha series this year, Becky and Avi Katz, in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lili Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manush. Also want to thank uh, today's particular sponsors, Robert and Yonina Levine, on commemoration of the year site of her mother, Miriam Basiakov Tzvi, and anonymously for a successful surgery in Fuashlema for Yakira Golda Basinda, having surgery this morning. Should go well, a speedy and a painless Rafua Shalema. Also, just a reminder before we dive into the Parsha, into Vayeshev, that on January 1st, down here in South Florida, we are privileged to have our own celebration of the Sia Mashas. Very, very exciting, a live hookup to MetLife. If you're going, enjoy, it'll be beautiful. It is the absolute capital of the celebration of the Sia. If you're not going, and you wanna be able to sit under a palm tree with no coat and enjoy from down here, I say that not, God forbid, the place to really have the Chavaya is 100,000 people in MetLife. If you're unable or not going, then join us for a live hookup to New York, plus a local Siam. It's gonna be an amazing, amazing event. You can get tickets, they're being sold outside in the lobby. The seats are filling up. So if you're gonna get tickets, certainly you'll want to reserve now. And lastly, and then we'll dive into the Parsha, we've relaunched our Friends of BRS campaign. If you're not a member of Boca Raton Synagogue and you're in this room enjoying the lights and air conditioning and Shear, whose rabbi whose salary is paid by the Boca Raton Synagogue, then please do your part to not just take, but to give for what you're taking. Join Friends of BRS, Linda's walking around. You can easily join, and there are benefits to being a member, a friend of BRS. This week we have the privilege of studying together and reading Parsha's Vayeshev, page 198 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Vayeshev Yaakov, Be'eretz Mugurei Aviv, Be'eretz Kenan. Yaakov settles into the land of his father, into Kenan. Or at least that's what he wants to do. He's now survived the reconciliation or reunion with his brother. He is building his own family, and he's reached a stage and a point in his life in which all he wants, his aspiration is, to simply settle down. Vayeshev Yaakov, Beret Migurei Aviv. Says Rashi, what does it mean, Vayeshev Yaakov? Says Rashi, Achar sheikasav l'cha yishuv ha'esav v'toldosav b'derach katsar shalayusivonim after we've told the survival of the interaction and the reconciliation with Esav. So Vayeshev Yaakov, Bikesh Yaakov, Leishev B'Shav. All he wanted was some peace, some tranquility. All he wanted was some harmony. And instead, he was visited with the episode, the most traumatic and dramatic episode of his life, his separation from his own son, from Yosef. Yosef disappears from him. All Yaakov wants is some peace and quiet. But Salavidzik points out that the earlier parashiyot from Lech Lecha through Vayishlach 
all center around the relationship of the Jew and the non-Jew. From Avram and Paro and Avram the kings in war and Avram and Yitzchak with Avimelech and Yaakov surviving his reconciliation with Esau, which we said is a model. Rebbe would read this before going to the Roman government. And Menachem Begin read Parshas Vayishlach before going to Washington to meet Carter and Sadat. All of it was how to interact and navigate and survive a world of hostility, of adversaries, a world from outside. Parshas Vayeshev through the end of Sefer Barashas is not the Jew with the enemy from without, but rather it is the story of the Jew surviving the enemy from within. The worst enemy which is ourselves. Ourselves. Sinaschina, baseless hatred and our sense of uh, competitiveness, our sense of tension, our sense of, of judgment, our sense of hatred, the rest of Ayesha through the end of Sefer Bereshit is how to function as a family, how to be a people, how to be a community, how to get along, how to navigate differences, how to disagree agreeably. That is what the rest is. So while, Yos, while Yaakov thinks, I survived the outside world, I overcame my enemies from without, and now Bikesh Yaakov Leishim Bashava, he thinks he'll be able to turn and transition to a world of peace and quiet and tranquility. He faces his most formidable enemy, and it's not from without, it is from within. We'll see momentarily, he unfortunately, according to many Rishonim, I would not say this on my own, but contributes to that enmity, contributes to that situation of hatred, but he also suffers terribly from it. Rabbi Salavitchik points out, Vayeshev Yaakov Eretz Migurei Aviv, the word Vayeshev is the connotation of settling permanently, the Pasuk strongly emphasizes was Yaakov's intention to attach himself to the land of Israel. In the words of Rashi, he wanted to settle down because Yaakov Leishin B'Sha'ava. Now the words Megurei Aviv Beretz Kenan connote not merely a geographical location, but a love for the land that was both his father's and his grandfather's home. What's interesting is, we saw that in Lavan Garti last week we spoke about. It doesn't say in Lavan Yashavti, but in Lavan Garti, Ger, that Avram introduced the tension between Ger Toshav Anochi that we on the one hand are a citizen, on the other hand a resident, the swinging of the pendulum, it's time to swing it back, that we can't get too comfortable, we have to realize that we participate in and we contribute to, but at the same time we are a stranger, at the same time we have to recognize that we are an outsider, we have to be willing to swim against the tide, that's when we are living among a foreign host. But now Yaakov's finally home, He's in the land of his forefather, and therefore no longer is he Garti, no longer is he a Ger, is he a stranger, no longer does he have to feel like a foreigner or an outsider, but now it's Vayeshev Yaakov. It's Yeshiva. Now he's not, he's a Toshav, he's a full and complete resident there. Rav Shechter in his Sefer on Parsha quotes the Medrash, cited by Rashi, that sees a tension or a contrast between Vayeshev, which implies permanence, and Migurei, which is a ger. And he says, that's what led, leads Rashi, quotes the Medrash, that he, he's still struggling with being a ger, an outsider, but all he wants is Vayeshev, he just wants to settle. He just wants to sit with tranquility. And Shechter writes, righteous people may set up a system for themselves through which they can accomplish their avodas Hashem. They may wish to wake up and go to Shachar's, learn Dafyomi, go to the job, learn Mishtayas during their lunch break, but Hashem does not allow them to lead a calm life. There are always stormy issues that arise because the purpose of life is to exercise one's free will, to navigate his way through his challenge and attempt to overcome difficulties. And in his entry in this week's Pasha, Shechter develops this notion. Why couldn't God provide Yaakov what he wanted? 
All he wants is peace and tranquility. What was wrong with that? And why couldn't the Rebona Shalom give it to him after everything he's been through? And the answer is, that's not why we're here. Adam la'amal yulad. We are here, not to struggle in the negative sense, but we are here to grow. And what stimulates growth is struggle. People don't have breakthrough. And people don't have growth. And people don't experience transformation through peace, quiet, and tranquility. We do when we are challenged. We do when we are tested. It is the precedent of our avos. Maisa avos Avram had to surpass and endure ten tests, and so do every one of us. And therefore, though we may want, we may strive for a life of peace and tranquility, of calm, we just want to play mahjong, tennis, and golf, go to the show, and get to the early bird, and call it a night. But Kaddish Baruch Hu says, that's not why we're here. It doesn't matter what age, what stage of life. It doesn't matter whether you are retired from your original profession and career. We are never done and we're never settled down and our best is always yet to come. There are growth opportunities and transformation opportunities. There are differences to make. There is light to bring and to illuminate this world. And therefore, that desire is not a fair desire. The notion that a Jew ever retires of Bikesh Yaakov Lefiri Vashava, I just want to retire. We are never, ever retired. We retire from a profession, we retire from a career, but we don't ever retire from life. In fact, sometimes it's when we only first retire from the profession or career that we can begin the rest of our life. Of finally, learning, volunteering, leading, doing the things that we're meant to do. And they come with struggle. That is the purpose, that is the essence of life. To express and exert our bechir chavshas, our free will, to be able to persevere in this battle between our body and our soul, a world of temptation and desire to overcome that Yetzahara that is in front of us. The Yetzahara that is in front of us. The Gemara implies, after witnessing their success in eradicating the Yetzahara, the Chachamim prayed to have the Yetzahara for Gilead rise delivered into their hands, and they were answered to the point that a freshly laid egg was not to be found throughout Eretz Yisrael because the elimination of the Yetzirah caused a halt to the impulse for procreation among males and females, both in the human and animal kingdom. And without procreating the world to become desolate, they withdrew the original prayer, and they daven for the Yetzirah to return. That Yetzirah and the battle and the struggle that we have with it, it is what life is about. It's what life is made of. When we win, when we persevere, when we endure, when we overcome, when we live a life of extreme ownership and discipline, that is the most fulfilling and satisfying and meaningful life that we can live. The Gemara Chachamim understand Tov, that's the Yetzirah, Tov, Tov Ma'od, that is the Yetzirah, that is the battle, and that is the backbone, and that is the fabric of our lives. That's what life of a Benoni is. Today is the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, Yotas Kislev, the Balatanya released from prison, started to spread the Chassidus, is the whole mechanism and means, it's the inspiration to persevere in that battle between the two worlds, never to conquer, never to be done, but a lifetime of managing that Yetzirah, and that was the mistake, and that's what Akash Baruch was responding to, uh, to Yaakov in that situation and in that case. Ela told us Yaakov Yosef. What does that mean? It's a little bit insulting to the other sons, no? Ela told us Yaakov. These are the offspring of Yaakov, Yosef. Um, Ruven, Shimon, Levi, Hi, remember us? What do you mean, Eila told us Yaakov? Yosef. So first of all, perhaps here is an allusion to Yaakov's contribution in the outcome, in the enmity, in the, in the sinner that resulted and that began a 
tragic scenario that we continue to suffer from until this very day. Until this very day, the sinner that exists in Klai Yisrael, the sense of Golas and exile that we continue to suffer from, our enemies leveraging and exploiting the division and divide within us, we continue to suffer from until this very day. And Yaakov contributed to that. On the one hand, our, our avos and imahos are beyond reproach. On the one hand, they are categorically different than any of us, and we are accountable if we address them or talk about them in a casual fashion. But on the other hand, they were also human and fallible, and we learn the lessons of their mistakes. That's why we have a safer bracious. That's why we have that, their story, to be able to inform and inspire our own. But the Svarno writes, that the brothers see that their father loves them. Yaakov writes the Svarno, in this way Yaakov made a mistake. To distinguish, to favor one son over the others. It's an absolute tragedy of parenting. It's an egregious mistake of parenting. To favor one child, certainly for it to be recognizable, for the other siblings to be able to identify that one sibling is favored, is a tragic and terrible and egregious mistake. The Rashbam writes, V'Yisrael Ahav, that Yaakov loved Yosef, Kol Zeh That's what caused the jealousy. Now, of course, the brothers are responsible because they didn't have to act on that jealousy. They didn't have to sell their brother. They didn't have to orchestrate this plan, which ended up with Gullus, with exile. But Yaakov's the one who instigated because he loved one more than the other. He favored one, Kina, that created a sense of kina. Where did the Rishonim get the gall, the brazenness, to be able to blame Yaakov? They got it from the Gemara Chazal itself. The Gemara Shabbos Davyot tells us, One act of favoring, one gesture of preferring one over the other, of treating one differently than the other, created a sense of kinah, and led ultimately to our suffering 210 years of persecution and oppression and genocide in Egypt. All began with spiral downward, all began with what? An act of favoring. An act of favoring. It's an awesome responsibility that parents have, is to interact with their children in a way that they feel loved equally. To not favor one over another. Not monetarily, not financially, not with affection, verbal, physical, not with gifts, not with time. It is an awesome, awesome responsibility. And the more children one has, the harder it is to try to strike and find that balance, to be able to show that love. And again, that love, just like uh, Chapman talks about the five love languages that exist within a married couple, there are different love languages of children. Some need acts of service, some need words of affection, some just want either cash or check or however you want to get it to them. There are different forms or expressions of love that different children need, but whatever the love language of that child, they need to perceive that the love languages are shared and expressed equally. We see the tragedy that results. And it's not necessarily, well, this one needs more than the other one. Because even the one who feels they don't need, you never know emotionally what someone needs, even if financially or physically or materially they don't seem to need. And therefore, to be able to shower that love, it has to be done equally. We see the consequence, the Gemara observes, of Yaakov not doing so equally, not doing so uh, fairly with all of the sons, and the result of, of what came out. Of what came out. The Medrash Tanchuma, Ki Aza Kamavas Ava, 
strong, powerful like death is love, the Medrash observes. Yosef Who caused Yosef to be the subject of such hatred? You hear the Lashem of the Medrash? The Medrash Tanchuma. Now you'd say there's no such thing as too much love of a parent towards a child. And the truth is, there is no such thing. A parent can't love a child enough, but has to love all children equally. Yosem Midai doesn't mean that child was loved too much. It means relative to other children, perceived by other children as being loved too much. Parshas Vayeshev is an annual reminder to take stock, to introspect and reflect, and to evaluate and ensure that we are expressing in all the love languages equal love to all of our children and grandchildren because the stakes are very high if we don't. The stakes are very high if we don't. This is true in our lifetimes. Arguably, it's even more important and more true after our deaths. I don't want to spend time on this now. Parshas Vayechi, we focus every year on the planning for afterlife, both Hever Kadisha, but also these things. But the people who do not plan, plan properly, results can be catastrophic of children not talking to one another, of grandchildren not talking to one another. When things are not planned properly and fairly, and they're not done thoughtfully and with mindfulness and intention, it can be potentially catastrophic. Okay, so what happens? This is the parsha of not the enemy from without, but the enemy from within, and that's what I want to concentrate a little bit together with you on today. So the story begins to unfold that uh, Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef, I forgot, I wanted to come back, I'm sorry. So Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef. So the first understanding is Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef. The problem that launched this entire parsha and that launched this entire spiraling down, this episode was why? Because Ela told us Yaakov, who was the one who felt that his real legacy and his real progeny and his real future was Yosef, it was Yaakov. Yaakov favored Yosef and that was the problem. That began it all. Rabbi Salavitchik has a different interpretation and it's a throwback to what we discussed last week, that Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef, which of Yaakov's son had a similar life circumstance? From which one do we learn a similar life lesson? Ela told us Yaakov, who's the tolda, who's the legacy of Yaakov? It's Yosef. And what's the legacy that they both teach? How a Jew survives exile without giving up our identity, our values, our ideals, our aspiration. Yaakov did it from a position of poverty, Yosef did it from a position of wealth, but neither forfeited, neither gave up who they were or what we are all about. And it's only because of both of their fidelity and loyalty, because of both of their devotion to who we are and meant to be as a people, even while living in exile and facing hostility. Again, Yosef from a position of ultimately as a viceroy, as a powerful uh, man of Egypt, a wealthy man. Yaakov from a position of being uh, on the run, a refugee of needing. But both of what we learned, the lesson from both is how to survive exile, how to survive on the run. This was a union that they had. Chazal interpreted the Pasuk, says Rabbi Salavichik, as if there's a hyphen between the names of Yaakov and Yosef, emphasizing the metaphysical unity between them. This type of union is later expressed in regard to the relationship between Yaakov and Binyam, and Nafsho, Kshurub, and Nafsho, two souls intertwined. Not two persons, they were one person. Yaakov's eye awareness included Yosef. Yaakov's love for his other children did not precipitate this ontological oneness. Yaakov didn't feel that same kinship or connection or continuity through the others as he did with Yosef. And on the one hand, it's an important observation. On the other hand, it is part of what contributed to this entire episode in a very, in a very negative, uh, in a negative sense. Okay, so continuing. That's what the Pasuk says. Yisrael Yosef Mikobanov ki ben 
Also, looks on his pasim. He prepared for him a colored coat. I mentioned every year, Rabbeinu Manoach, in his commentary on the Rambam says, when do we invoke this imagery? When do we remember the sin of the hatred that began it all? Pesach night. We come to the Seder and we dip the karpas. Why are we dipping the karpas in the salt water? Rabbeinu Manoach, a commentary on the Rambam, writes, why? Because karpas comes from the word from karpas, pasim, kesonus pasim. The karpas is reminiscent, and the dipping is reminiscent. The Yaakov favored Yosef by giving him the coat, and the brothers, when they feigned Yosef's demise, took the coat and dipped it in blood. We dip it in salt water, because on Pesach night, buff, breathe deep, it's not Hanukkah yet, we're okay. On Pesach night, before we can experience the freedom and the liberty and the emancipation, before we can celebrate redemption, we have to remember what began it all. And what began it all was Sanaschinam. So we launched the Seder with the dipping of the Karpas, Karpas Pasim. We dip and we remember the dipping of the coat and the blood. That sin of that hatred is what began it all. Because as the Pasik testifies, they saw that Yosef was more beloved. And you know what happens when there's favoritism? The result is not indifference, and the result is not apathy. You know what the consequence of favoritism is? Hatred. So they weren't indifferent or apathetic. They didn't just withdraw from Yosef. They hated him. Hate is a toxic word, certainly an emotion. Hate is devastating. Hate is destructive. And you know what? It begins with hate. It begins by a focus on the differences, and then lo yachlu dabro l'shalom. What does that phrase mean? It's a very clumsy expression. Lo yachlu dabro l'shalom. What does that even mean? Lo yachlu dabro l'shalom. What does that even mean? So the Ibn Ezra says lo yachlu dabro l'shalom means afilu l'shalom. They couldn't even give each other a shalom aleichem. They couldn't give each other a shalom aleichem. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican. You wear a velvet yarmulke, or you keep asirgah, you wear no yarmulke, you're a member of this segment of community, you're a member of that segment of the community, you root for the Red Sox, you root for the Yankees. Lo yachul dabro l'shalom, afilu l'shalom. Sinna is so toxic, it's so pernicious, it's so, it's so poisonous. It poisons the air so badly that people, afilu l'shalom, they can't even say shalom aleichem. They go to the other side of the street. They can't sit at a Shabbos table together. They can't sit and experience a yantav meal together. They can't. You have to be careful. Who do you invite to go? Oh, they can't sit with this one. Because they voted for him and they would never. They can't even tell they're an anti-him. They can't sit together. Oh, the simcha? Who's going to sit where? What table? Oh, they can't be together. Sinna results in When you introduce sinna, when you introduce hatred, and it's baseless, because hatred is all baseless, other than justified hatred. <laughs> like of the Red Sox. That's justified hatred. No. The hatred of, of, of Rishas, hatred of, of evil, is, uh, has a base. Hatred of Hamas and Hezbollah, is, and hatred of anti-Semitism. If you love Hashem, then you hate Ra. So there's a, a hatred which has a base, which is justified. But the hatred between brothers, between family members, in our people, community, the forms of hatred I mentioned, political, religious, these are not legitimate or base, based forms of hatred. So when there's a hatred, can't even give each other a shalom aleichem. Can't even give each other a shalom aleichem. Bionis and Eibshitz and his Tiferes Yonasan says differently. means, do you know how you achieve peace? Dabro, as long as you keep speaking. When you stop speaking, 
when you can't even talk to one another, when you can't even speak, you'll never get to a place of shalom. You can't get to a place of peace. When people withdraw and they can't even talk to one another, refuse to talk to one another, they stop talking to one another, then you can't have peace. You can have peace as long as you're in conversation. You can have rigorous debate. You can disagree, but it has to be agreeably. As long as Dabro, as long as you're talking, you'll find that way to get to a place of shalom. But that's how much the enmity existed. That's how bad it had gotten. That's where it was. That's what you see in all these psukim. Paraklam Zion Pasik Bays. What happened? He brought the Diba. I'm sorry, not Pasuk Bays. So what happens? His father sends... The brothers come and they tell the father, they complain. What kind of dream is this? His brothers were jealous. They were jealous. But, what does it mean? What does that mean? We'll come to that in a moment. But keep going. They went to go shepherd their father's flock in Shechem. Your brothers are shepherding in Shechem. Go check in on them. Go see what's happening with them. Again, this is a terrible miscalculation of Yaakov. Go check in on your brothers who hate you. That's not the way to promote conversation, dialogue, and reconciliation. He goes to send them. In fact, according to Rav Yol Ben-Nun, it's what contributes to Yosef's misunderstanding. Why for 22 years, most of which Yosef has risen to the position of Viceroy of Egypt, does he not make contact with his father? For most of the 22 years, does he not even try to reach out and to be able to be back in touch with his father? Rav Yol Ben-Nun suggests because Yosef miscalculates, misunderstands, and thinks that his father was part of this whole ploy. And why does he think that? Because... Who's the one who sent him to go check in on his brothers? The same brothers that then take him, throw him in a pit, and ultimately sell him into slavery. It's his father. And why would Yosef possibly have come to that conclusion? It's actually a very logical, compelling conclusion. Why? All he does is think about his father and his grandfather. He says, hmm, when it came to my grandfather, Avram, he had two sons. He had Yitzchak and Yishmael. One of them he rejected and one of them he embraced. When it came to my father Yitzchak, he had two sons, me and my brother Esav. One he accepted and one of them, the one that he rejected. So maybe Yosef says, sorry, great-grandfather and grandfather. Maybe when it comes to my father, I'm the Yishmael. Maybe I'm the Esav of the family. And just as Yishmael was kicked out and Esav was kicked out, maybe Yosef concludes to himself, my father orchestrated this and sent me out because I'm the reject of my family. I'm the unrealized line in my family. And it's only 22 years later when the brothers come and he realizes through them that his father has never recovered from his loss, that he understands that his father wasn't part of orchestrating this entire episode. And that's when he orchestrates the reconciliation, the reunion together with his father. But it's understandable. When his father says, why don't you go, you know those brothers who aren't talking to you and who hate you and who threaten you and you can't get along with? Go on, check how they're doing. Go to a bad neighborhood and go find them and go see how they're doing. So he goes, Go see Shlom Achecha. 
Go check on Shlom Achacha. So Rav Simcha Bunim writes, Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa writes that what Yaakov meant, Re'eya Shlom Achacha, was go make Shalom with your brothers. Yosef maybe misinterpreted a quarter of Rav Yoh Benun that he sent him out because this was all part of the plan to get rid of him. But Rav Simcha Bunim of Pshischa says no, the opposite. Yaakov is sending him because Yaakov senses maybe not his role and his contribution in the sinner, but Yaakov understands that there's a problem. And so, go investigate and go see Shalom. Go make Shalom. You're no longer talking and there's no, therefore no Shalom. So therefore, Yaakov sends Yosef out and says, go make Shalom with your, with your brother. But there's another interpretation. He, can, he continues, of Peshisra, and he says, means, what does the word shalom come from? Peace. When do you have peace with someone when you are? At the root of the word shalom is? Shalem. Complete. Whole. When you're whole with someone, when you feel complete. What's the opposite of shalem? Chaser. Chaser means deficient, missing, empty. So, what Yaakov was really telling Yosef was, if you want to be able to have peace with someone else, you need to see what is whole or complete within them. There are two options and two choices. When we interact with others, we can either focus on chesronam, on what they are missing, on what they're deficient at, and how they're different from us, or we can look at how they are shalem, where we are whole together, what we have in common, what we have together, where we overlap. Says Yaakov, Yosef, you and your brothers aren't getting along because you're focused on what's chaser, what's missing in the relationship, the competitiveness between you. But instead, go out, go find your brothers, and do what? Don't focus on what's chaser, focus on what's shalom. How do you achieve shalom? By seeing what is shalom. The great Noam Elimelech, Rav Elimelech of Lezhinsk, has a beautiful, beautiful tefillah. And in that tefillah, he has language that Avram Fried turned into a magnificent song. That when we look at our friend, we're supposed to see... Anyone know the song, the Avram Fried song? From the Tzetel of Rav Noam Ali Melech? You should look at your friends and see all their virtues and all their good and all that you have in common. Velo, velo, velo. It only says the word velo once, but Avram Fried, when he sings it, velo chesronam. Don't focus on what someone's missing. Nobody's perfect. I'll tell you a little secret. You're not perfect. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. So either we can focus on imperfections, on the chesronam, what's missing, or we can focus on what may shalim, what is perfect within the person, what we have in common. That says Rav Simcha Bonam Pshischa is what Yaakov was sending Yosef out, was re'ei eshlom achecha. Go look and go focus on what is shalim, what is whole, what is complete within your, within your brother. What I love is the, this insight is the exact opposite side of the coin. Here we have in our parsha both the, diagnos- the, the, the diagnosis of the problem, but we also have the prescription for the answer. The problem is sinas chinam. The problem is when we see what's chaser. But the solution is the answer is to continue to be medaber, to speak, to dialogue, to converse. 
afilu l'shalom, to give a shalom aleichem, not only to the people who are different than us, but especially to the people who are different than us, those are the first that we should be making the effort to give the shalom aleichem to, to give the shalom aleichem to. But it wasn't successful, because if you look at Perek Lam, Zayin, Pasuk, Yilches, keep going down, what happens? Yosef meets an ish. Remember last week we spoke about our angels created on earth or in heaven? Be an angel for others. And I said that consistently through Sefer Breshas is Machlokas, Ibn Ezra, and Rashi. Whenever it says a malach, does it mean a malach mamish? Literally an angel? Or does it mean a person who's acting as someone else's angel? So here we have another form of it. Yosef runs into an ish. This mysterious, enigmatic person who says, oh, I'm looking for my brothers. Oh, they're that way. Who is this person? So here we have consistent that machlokas. Was this a malach that Hashem sent to help Yosef find his brothers? Or was this a person acting like Yosef's malach, who's trying to help him out and encourage him on the way? In either case, the brothers see him, and how do they see him? They see him how? They see him at a distance. And here, the tzaddik, Rav Yitzchak Gavorka, says, The goal was shalom. The goal is to focus on what we have in common, where you're shalom. The goal was to focus on what makes us draw close. But instead, the brothers focused on, so they saw him as how? He's so far from us. So far from us. I'm so from, they're so not from. I'm so conservative, they're so progressive. I'm so this, they're so that. If we focus on mirachok, if we focus on the chasm, the distance, the difference between us, there's sin of this hatred. If we focus on to go check, not mirachok, don't see the distance, see the closeness. Don't see how far away, see how close together. Don't see what's missing, see what's there. In this parsha, as I said, is both the problem, but we also have in this parsha, therefore the antidote or the solution, what we need to be doing and how we need to be behaving. So what happens? Go back to the word shamar as hadavar. The brothers were jealous, vaviv shamar es hadavar. So the first part about what I'm gonna tell you, I've shared many times before, but I saw in Revolbas something new, which is why I'm repeating it. I wanna tell you Revolbas. Vaviv shamar es hadavar. What does the word shamar mean? Vaviv shamar. Safeguarded or kept, but it doesn't mean that. In this context, shamar doesn't just mean to safeguard or keep, it means to anticipate. Yaakov reprimanded Yosef for sharing his dreams, but aviv shamar sadavar. At the same time, he reprimanded Yosef that it wasn't correct to share his dreams, but Yaakov at the same time anticipated and waited for the fulfillment of those dreams. The word shamar doesn't just mean to guard, it means when you guard something with anticipation, with longing, with countdown, with excitement. Vaviv shamar es hadavar. So what I've shared with you before is that the Abdur Rav, the Oiv Yisrael, Ram Yeshua Heshel says, that's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos Yid. To be a Shomer Shabbos doesn't just mean to keep Shabbos on the weekend. It means to be a Shomer Shabbos means all week long. You look for and you long and you await for Shabbos. As we know is the halacha. It's in the names of the days themselves. Sunday is Yom Rishon. Monday is Yom Sheni. Tuesday is Yom Shlishi and so on. The whole week we're counting two Shabbos. And you buy, when you see a delicacy, you say, oh, this would be perfect for Shabbos. To be a true Shomer Shabbos is not just when the clock strikes on Friday night and you don't have any more time. To be a real Shomer Shabbos is to experience Erev Shabbos. 
Thursday night and Friday. For your Shabbos table to be set Thursday night so that Friday morning you wake up to an Erev Shabbos home. That's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos, is to count down, to long, to wait. Aviv Shamar Sadavar, from that word Shamar, we see what it really means to be a Shomer Shabbos. So that I've shared with you before, but what I saw this year is Revolba in a Sefer, and in Shiure Chumash, Revolba says the following Shmira and Yanahit Tzviya. What does it mean to be a Shomer? It means Tzviya means to wait, to long, to hope. What did Yaakov mean when he said, I lived with love and Matarik Mitzvah Shamarti? It doesn't just mean I in the past observed the Mitzvah, it means my whole life is waiting for the next Mitzvah. My whole life, Shamar, Shamarti, to be a Shomer Torah and Mitzvah, right? So we saw the Apta Rav applied it to being a Shomer Shabbos. Revolve is applying it to being a Shomer Torah and Mitzvah. To be a Shomer Torah and Mitzvah doesn't, doesn't mean when the Mitzvah hits me in the face and I have no choice. I'm running out of time for Mincha. I'm running out of time for Shacharis. I have to give the Tzedakah. So I'm a Shomer Torah and Mitzvah. I have to eat and I need it to be kosher in order to eat. So if, it's not just I, I have to. It's to be a Shomer, Vavim Shamar Sadavar. To be Shamar something means with excitement, with anticipation. And therefore, to be a Shomer Torah Mitzvah means to long, to look forward, to wait, to be excited. So when he lived with Lavan, he didn't fulfill the Mitzvah. So what does it mean, Im Lavan Garti Vitari Mitzvah Shamarti? It's an entirely new interpretation, says Revolba. Im Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan, and even while I was living with Lavan, Tarag Mitzvah Shamarti. I guarded my hope, I guarded my anticipation. My excitement for the day I'd be able to fulfill mitzvos never waned. And therefore he says, Biavaraba. Here's a little sitter snippet for you. Biavaraba. We'll get up to in twenty years. Biavaraba onumispalim. Vesain Balibeno Lavin Laskilish Shmalum Lamed. Lishmor Vala Sosulakayem. Lishmor Hainu Litsapos Masayagiali Dliadai Va Akaimena. So therefore he says, what does it mean? V'seim b'libeinu, put in my heart to learn, to understand, to have insight. Lishmor, so that I will be excited, not give me the knowledge so that I can properly observe, but let my learning generate within me an excitement, an anticipation, a longing to practice what I'm learning and to execute and to be a Shomer Torah u'mitzvos. Shmiri alimur amenas l'kayim. Shmira means learning with the anticipation to execute. That's the difference of what it means to be a Jew. There is wisdom among the non-Jews. But Torah is not just an abstract conceptual wisdom. Torah is only when it motivates and moves us to execute what we've learned, when it molds and shapes us into Torah personalities, when we get excited to put into practice what we are preaching and what we are studying. So therefore, changes this tefillah and avarab, all based on our pasuk. Vavim shamar sadavar. Yaakov longed for the fulfillment of those dreams. You see the word shamar means to long with excitement and anticipation. As in Shomer Shabbos all week long, Shomer Torah and mitzvos, even before we're in the position to fulfill, but we can't wait for the next mitzvah chance, the next mitzvah opportunity. It's what Yaakov meant in Lavan Garti, even while I lived with Lavan. And I was in Chutzlar, so I couldn't keep all the mitzvahs. But Tarek Vitzvah Shamarti, I was still excited, and I waited for, and I hoped for, and I looked forward to it. And that's what we daven the same believing lavin, give us a learning which isn't just academic, it's not conceptual, but it's a learning which generates lishmor, it generates the excitement within us 
when we will have the chance to be able to observe and to be able to put it into, into practice. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. I want to get to the episode of Yehuda and Tamar. Wake you people up a little bit. But quickly on the way there. We know he's thrown into the pit. He's taken out of the pit. He's sold into slavery. He comes down to Mitzrayim. They lie to their father. They dip the cloak in the water, in the blood. And... Uh, and so on. Okay, yeah, episode of Yudin and Tamar. Page 208 in the Art Scroll Stone, Chomesh. Yehuda goes down. And Chazal, note, why does it say that he goes down? Because it means that he went down in morality. He went down in practice. In this whole episode that happens. We're not going to spend the time now. We have in the past, and you can listen online. But what is the chronology of the events that unfold in our Parsha? It's impossible the story of Yehuda and Tamar happened here because... Yehuda could not have been married, had children, children be married, children died, the whole Tamar, Yehuda, this entire episode would take an amount of time, and it was more than the amount of time it took to sell Yosef into slavery. So therefore, when did this happen? According to some Rishonim, in Muktam Muhar Batora, this whole episode of Yehuda and Tamar happened before Yosef was sold into slavery. Yosef was still an active member of the family when it happened. According to others, it happened later, but it's placed now. But either way, you have to ask yourself, what was the Torah intending to teach us by placing it where it placed it, if in fact it happened at a different time? That is not our subject for today. I want to ask a different question. Our subject for today. And our subject for today, we know the story. What's the story? Yudah's two sons, they marry, they both die because of their own sins, because of their own mistakes. Yudah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, wants a continuity and feels she deserves a continuity. Therefore, she dresses up like a harlot and on the side of the road solicits Yehuda's business. Why is Yehuda himself engaging in that business? There's more questions than we can answer, which is the real reason most teachers skip it in school. And, <laughs> and uh, ultimately, Yehuda is with Tamar. She becomes pregnant. Yehuda sees his daughter-in-law is impregnated and challenges her because of her promiscuity. She holds on to the uh, ring and uh, the property of Yehuda, which he had given her as collateral, as payment for her services. She doesn't want to embarrass him in public, but she challenges him, and he makes this great admission, many. she is more righteous than I. She was correct. And here's the most shocking, startling part of the entire story, is that what? What was really going on with this whole story is... Chazal put it well in Breshis Rabbah. Roshmuel ben Nachman Pasach, Kianochi Yadati as Machshavos, Ashanochi Choshev Alechem. It's a Pasach in Yirmiyahu that God knows all the thoughts. God understands everything happening in the background. Shvatim Ayu Asukim ben Machirasa Shal Yosef. The tribes were busy with their hatred, getting revenge, selling their brother. Yosef Ayu Asuk Besako Betaniso. And Yosef is busy mourning and grieving and being sold into slavery. Yaakov ayasuk besako betaniso. And Yaakov is busy grieving the loss of his son Yosef. Yehuda ayasuk likach isha. And Yehuda is working on a wife. And what's Hashem doing all the while in the background? While what seem to be disparate events are unfolding, what seem to be negative events are all unfolding, what's Hashem doing in the background all along? He's pulling all the strings. Why? leading towards a certain conclusion, namely, is busy bringing Mashiach. So Yehuda and Tamar are the progenitors of 
Mashiach. We know that through the Yehuda and Tamar story comes Mashiach. So much so that while this whole thing is happening, Hashem is busy planting the seeds, quite literally, for Mashiach. Which begs the question, why does Mashiach come from such a salacious lineage? All the stories of Mashiach, whether the Sefer Rus, which ends with the lineage of Mashiach, and with the story of Sefer Rus, to the Medrash tells us that where can David be found? The Pasuk in Tehillim says, Matsasi David Avdi, Tehillim Peites, Matsasi David Avdi, I found my servant David. And says the Gemara, say Chazal, the Gemara, the Medrash Rabbah, and the Gemara, Heichan Matsasiv, where is David found? Be Sedom. David was found in Sedom. Sedom? Sedom, the capital of corruption, immorality, depravity. That's where David HaMelech is found? And the answer is, yeah, just open a Tanakh. That's exactly where he's found. First in the story of Yehuda and Tamar, Lot and his daughters, David and Bathsheba, Rus and Boaz, the entire lineage of Mashiach. It's a good thing that Mashiach didn't need to submit a resume for a shidduch. If Mashiach had to give a shadch in his resume, who are your parents, who are your grandparents, who are your great-grandparents, who are your siblings, where do you come from, what yeshiva, what seminary, what are you up to, attach a picture, full length, make sure that you have a, a uh, professional photographer. Imagine Mashiach had to submit, and this is his background. Why in the world would Hashem, why in the world would Hashem specifically give us Mashiach in this way? And in contrast to other religions, which of course have no truth and no basis, in which their ideal of a Messiah character has to come from immaculate conception, he must come from the exact opposite. Not only from immorality, moral depravity, from corruption, from salaciousness, he must come from something that transcends even the physical form, physical desire, physical interaction. Even more the opposite. So one might wonder, Maybe their way makes a lot more sense. Mashiach, Melch Mashiach, the one who is the representation of the, the harbinger, the one who was going to bring about the Geula, the redemption, should come from such a checkered past or should come from the cleanest past? Why does he come from the checkered past that he, that he does? We don't have enough time to investigate this fully, but I'll just bring to your attention, it's fascinating, Rabbeinu Bachya has a defense of Lot and his daughters, we saw the story of Lot and his daughters. Lot's daughters sleep with Lot, and they bring about Ammon and Moab as a result. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar offers a defense where he says that they thought it was another episode of a Mabul. They'd seen Sodom and Amora be destroyed, and they thought the entire world was destroyed, and that the only way to create a continuity of humanity was to be willing to engage in this, uh, in this act. Rav Moshe, in, in the introduction to Igris Moshe, the eighth volume, it tells a story, 1921, when Rav Moshe was the Rav of the town of uh, Luban. And someone from the town got very sick, and doctors came, and on his deathbed, when he shared a dream, he was visited by Lot's daughters. This is not in some fable book. It's an Igros Moshe. Rav Moshe Feinstein tells this uh, story um, of the daughters of Lot coming to this man who admitted it to Rav Moshe on his deathbed. And the daughters of Lot basically said, how dare you paint us in a negative light, negative portrait. We really did this for all the, all the right reasons. But again, we see that Mashiach comes from Yehuda and Tamar, Lot and his daughters, David and Bacheva. Why would he come from through such a salacious way? So Rav Tzadik of Lublin and his Sinska Satzalik writes, Be'ekvas of the Mashiach ha'ekru rak lahotzi yakar mezulal. V'rak b'makum yetzahara v'tikboros avonos b'sham yikachecha da'ika a'yidei tshuva. 
says the Tzidkas Tzadik. Why? Because Mashiach has to be the embodiment, the representation of the capacity for tshuva. No matter how far you've fallen. How is the story of Yehuda and Tamar introduced? Vayered Yehuda me'esechav. He had fallen so far. And so Mashiach and his background remind us that no matter how far, no matter how fast you fall, there's always a way back. Mashiach is the result from people who had fallen and yet they find a way back. And that is the message and that is the lesson for all of us as the Rav Tzadik. The Mechtav Melio, Rav Dessler, has a similar thought. He writes in a Yehuda, Mereshus, Leidasa, Yechelka, Shetetim, and Machus, Beis David. I in Targum Yonasan. Yehuda from his inception was supposed to be the progenitor of Mashiach. But first, in order for Yehuda to be the progenitor of Mashiach, of Malchus based David, he had to go through the experience of Tzadka Mimeni. Now this is very, very different than our impression of leaders today. But in Judaism, what makes you eligible to be a king, what makes you eligible for a position of power or leadership, is specifically the capacity to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. We live in a time that leaders think that they're never allowed to say they're wrong. They have to make every excuse in the book, every explanation, every justification, every rationalization. They can never say that they were wrong. You know what the word rationalize means? Rational lies. It's the rational lies that we tell ourselves. When people rationalize, it's the rational lies that we tell ourselves and we tell others. But Rav Dester says, for Klal Yisrael, it's the opposite. If you want to climb to a position of leadership and power, you have to first go through an experience of Tzad Kamimeni. You have to be willing to make an admission that I've made a mistake. Because after all, what is the mission of Mashiach? What is he here to do and to accomplish? The whole purpose of Mashiach is to help people repair the error of their ways. The whole part, how does redemption come? When we take responsibility and accountability for our mistakes when we pledge to improve, when we transform ourselves to the better. If Mashiach is supposed to stimulate that and be the catalyst for that for all of us, then what better lesson, what more powerful way to teach it than to have lived it, than to have it in his own background. It was only in potential in Yehuda. He had to go through an experience where he would publicly say, Tzad Kamimani, publicly make an admission he was wrong, publicly take responsibility and accountability, and publicly pledge to change his ways. So if Desla is a very radical opinion, he says, Kaddish Baruch Hu made this whole, you have so many questions that don't have answers, the only answer is Hashem orchestrated the whole episode. It doesn't make sense why a tzaddik like Yehuda would be soliciting the services of a Tamar on the side of the road. It doesn't make any sense why a righteous Tamar could even imagine or have the creativity to dress up and to act like that, even if it was the only way to get, none of it makes sense. Says of Dessler, the reason none of it makes sense is it's only Hashem. He orchestrated it all. Why? Because he had to position Yehuda to be in a place where he would say Tzad Kamimeni. Because by doing that, he revealed the potential within him and he implanted within the DNA of his children, his offspring, his progeny, ultimately with Melech HaMashiach himself, our ability to say, I was wrong, I want to be better, I'm going to improve myself, which is exactly what will bring about and what results in Mashiach. 
And Rav Dester tr- uh, traces this through the story of David and Bacheva as well. Chatasi Lashem. The difference between David and Shaul. Shaul, his father-in-law, made a terrible mistake by not wiping out Amalek. But he rationalizes. He tells rational lies to himself that a Baruch doesn't buy it. So Shaul loses the Malchus. When David is confronted, what does David say? Chatasi Lashem. It is a continuation of Tzadka Mimeni. The capacity to admit, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I will do better. I promise to be better. And Rus, Ima Shamalchus, is the same story, says, says Rav Dessler. The Sif Sechayim, Rav Chaim Friedlander, says one of the goals of Mashiach is to extract the holy sparks from the nations of the world. And therefore, Mashiach needs to be able to draw out holiness from very unholy places. And that's why in his own past, he is the result of unholy stories because he has to be able to have that strength and that power within him. Rabbi Soloveitchik gives a different answer in his book, Abraham's Journey. And Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following. The personality of Mashiach is not monotonic. God weaves the personality of Mashiach with vast amounts of multicolored threads like Yosef's shirt. The messianic soul is iridescent, multi-talented, rich in thought-filled volition, and will be endowed with talents that seem mutually exclusive. But everything good and fine and noble in man must be passed on to Mashiach. He will have the capacity of a gvura and chesed. He will be a hero with unlimited power and strength who will defend justice. He will also be a man of unlimited loving kindness, humble and simple. All these capabilities, capacities and talents will merge in the beautiful harmony in Melech HaMashiach. Mashiach will represent creation at its best. Apparently then Lot's daughter said something beautiful in them to contribute to Mashiach's rich and powerful personality. If there is something fine in the non-Jewish families of the earth, it too will be passed on to Mashiach. And he goes on and he says the story also with Tamar. Mashiach has another grandmother who came to us from the Gentile world, Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Yehuda. She was the great-great-grandmother of Boaz and consequently of David and therefore of Mashiach. The Torah tells us it came to pass when Yehuda went down. The Medrash says at that time means everyone was busy and Hashem was busy creating the light of Mashiach. In other words, Yehuda set in motion a process leading to his ultimate marriage to Tamar, which resulted in the inspired personality of Mashiach. Tamar was a heroic woman, a great woman. God gleaned and gathered beautiful things from throughout the world, gems, noble emotions, heroic capabilities. What could Tamar do that others could not? She could wait. She possessed the heroic ability and patience to wait without end. Tamar waited many years. She was lonely, forsaken, forgotten by everyone. Seasons passed. All of her friends married, reared families. All contact with them came to an end. People treated her with ridicule and contempt. Shla married. Yehuda had forgotten her. And yet, she waited and never said a word. Wasn't she the incarnation of Knesset Israel, which has waited for her beloved hundreds and thousands of years under the most trying circumstances? Did Tamar, did not Tamar personify the greatest of all heroic action to wait while the waiting arouses laughter and derision? Mashiach has yet another grandmother who came to us from the Gentile world, Rus. She too was heroic. Boaz acknowledged the great courage of this pagan girl in casting her lot with the people she did not previously know. And he goes on and talks about Rus's heroism and what she contributed, contributes to our people. The king Mashiach must be endowed with heroic qualities. He's coming to change the status quo, to revolutionize concepts and opinions, to transform our outlook on life, who will defy evil, oppose ruthlessness, challenge injustice. Messianism minus heroic action is meaningless. The poor of biblical times used to glean and gather about, and so on and so forth. So Rabbi Soloveitchik creates this notion that the ancestry gave Mashiach the ingredients that he would need or will need speedily in our day for leadership. Humility, courage, patience, a desire to save the world. This checkered background of Mashiach is exactly what positions Mashiach to be able to stimulate the kind of change and growth that we will all need to be able to bring Mashiach when we, when we want to. A few more very, very quick things because I'm running out of time. 
I want to share with you something. I'm not going to share this. I'm running out of time. That was a little too radical for you. I'm looking around. You, you people can't handle this. It's too radical. Too radical. Perak Lama Tess, Pasuk Ches. Try you? All right, I'll try you. In the story of Yehuda and Tamar, I want to share with you two, really one insight from Yosef Chaim of Baghdad in his Ode Yosef Chai. He writes the following. I shared this originally many years ago in a shir I gave on the issue of transgender, which in our last minute and a half is not for now. But I do want to share with you the idea, the notion that somebody could have one physical form of one gender, but feel like they have the soul of the opposite gender, which to us seems so um, foreign and so unusual and in some ways even such a form of um, an unhealthy personality or unhealthy perspective, but perhaps has a basis. Now, it doesn't change the outcome. As we discussed in that year many years ago, it doesn't change the outcome halachically of the status of a person who feels this way or what options they have available to them to change their body. Halacha is halacha, and halacha in determining gender has uh, a lot to say and so on. But if it, nothing else, if it helps us uh, become more sensitive and it helps us become um, more understanding and more caring for people who feel that they're in such a predicament. So Od Yosef Chaim, Yosef Chaim of Baghdad writes the following. On the Pasuk, The prohibition of cross-dressing. Because Baruch created a world with different genders, and for the world to function with that balance, it has to be able to have the different genders. Zachar and Akeva Bra'am. He created a world of masculinity and femininity, and we need to maintain and preserve the two. And when they become clouded and mixed, when those lines become violated and blurred, then the world itself is threatened. So writes Od Yosef Chaim, he quotes from the base Yosef on our parsha, parsha's Vayeshev. Shal Hamagid Lamaram. So the base Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karl, the author of the Shulchan Arach, used to have dreams. And in his dreams, he had conversations with an angel where he would discuss Torah. And he published them in a sefer, Magid Mesharim. And he tells a story, And here in this context, he says the following, Sometimes a male soul can be reincarnated into a physical body. A female soul can be reincarnated into a male body. And he writes the reason. This even impacts the world of fertility, he says. Mystically, the true gender of the soul within that opposite body can even have an impact on fertility. I don't know what that means. Why am I raising it with you? Because this is what he writes. That Tamar really had a male soul, Yehuda had a female soul, and even though the physical form took on the opposite gender, somehow their mystical soul was able to unite and able to conceive and able to produce. And he goes on and on in this passage. I'm not sharing it with you because I have any understanding of it whatsoever. I'm sharing it with you because I want to sensitize 
that maybe in our time, in the ikvas of the Mashiach, we're seeing the world of, of confusion, but rather than react with such harshness, you should know that there are people, I've had an email correspondence with someone, it's anonymous, I have no idea who they are or where they live, but they identify themselves to me as a member of the Haredi community who goes to Minyan every day and lives in Dafyomi and is raising children in the yeshiva system, Beis Yaakov system, and tells me that they are a female neshama stuck in a male body, tortured by it, suicidal, don't know what to do about it, because I gave the shir many years ago and they found it online, he found it online, has corresponded with me. Someone going through that, you don't even know. Someone going through that would give anything in the world not to be going through that. Not everybody going through that is celebrating it and parading it and, and uh, letting the world know about it in a way that's in your face. Some people are struggling harshly. And I shared this, this text with you, which is written long before this became popular and in our day, to tell you that even those who are struggling, we have to have a sensitivity in how we talk about this issue and how we interact and relate to people who are struggling with this issue. And it doesn't change our bottom line of halacha. It doesn't change how halacha defines gender. It doesn't change the options that halacha uh, allows for people to address this tragic circumstance. But I just want to bring to your attention to hopefully, hopefully cultivate within us a greater sense of uh, appreciation, a greater sense of understanding. Give me two more minutes because I don't want to end on that. Give me two more minutes to share with you just a quick more thought. Perek Lamates Pasaches is the story of Yosef being seduced by the wife of Potiphar. Yosef finds the courage. How does he find the courage? Vayimma'ein. He rejects. What is the cantillation over the word Vayimma'ein? It's Pasaches, page 214. He overcomes his temptation and desire. He resists her solicitation. Yosef. And Vayimain, the word Vayimain means he rejects. How does he find the strength to reject? So what's the trap over the word Vayimain? <coughs> it is a shashelis. It is a shashelis, which I will not reenact for you right now. <laughs> However, that word shashelis means a chain. You know what gave Yosef the courage and the strength to overcome? Shashelis. When he realized he was a link in a chain, he was part of a continuation that he was from the DNA that came before him and he had a responsibility to those who would come after him. Shashelis is not just the name of the trap on the word Vayimain. Shashelis is what actually gave Yosef the courage and the strength to be able to overcome all, all together, to be able to overcome to begin with. Perak Mem, Pasuk Zion. Yosef is now languishing in prison, falsely accused. And if it were me, I would be hiding in the corner. If it were me, I would be... Um, so miserable with my own circumstance. My family abandoned me. I've been falsely accused, languishing and wallowing in my own woes. What does Yosef do instead? Perak Lamed, Perak Mem Pasuk Zion. What does he do instead? Page 218. He's sitting in prison and rather than wallow in the corner in his own woes, he sees these two people he's sharing a prison cell with and he says to them, Madua Pnechim Ra'im Hayom. The Gemara Rosh Hashanah tells us what day on the Hebrew calendar was it that he turned to those misfits in the same cell and said, hey buddies, what's with the, excuse me, what's with the long faces? What day was it on the Jewish calendar? Anyone here know? I'm glad you stuck around for this. It was Rosh Hashanah. It was the first of Tishrei. It was, it was Rosh Hashanah. And what do you see from here? If you want a new beginning, if you want a fresh start, if you want a Rosh Hashanah in your life, how does Yosef get out of prison? I'm sorry, what day did Yosef get out of prison? This, not the day that he asked the question. What day did Yosef get out of prison? Was Rosh Hashanah. 
What got Yosef out of prison was the fact that he didn't retreat and wallow in his own woes, that he saw the pain of people around him and he stopped and he said, Hey brother, what's the matter? What's with the long face? He had every reason to be able to sit in that prison cell, focus only on himself, and feel terrible for himself. But instead, he's sitting in that prison cell as if he had no trouble in the world, and he sees the other people and he says, What's the matter? What's with the long face? And if we want to break out of our own problems, it's not by focusing on our own problems. It's by looking at the people around us and saying, Caring about the people around us is how we get out of our own situation. It brings about our own Rosh Hashanah. It's how we get out of the prisons of our own making. Have a wonderful week.